Hiya, and welcome back to the Artists in Residence podcast. You are listening to Series 2 with me, your host, Isabel Wilkinson. The Artists in Residence podcasting community exists to help take good ideas and turn them into action. Born from the questions, what is creativity and how can we use creativity for good? We bring people together to share their experiences and ideas so we can innovate and drive forward solutions to issues that affect people on the planet. When it comes to the biggest issues, we are all artists in residence. For the final episode of series two, we hopped on a call with Kat Sarsfield. Kat is a brand strategist and copywriter living in London. And together we talked all about the freelance life, what creativity means to her, and how sharing nostalgic food memories served as an escapism for Kat during the pandemic. And she went on to explain how her newsletter now serves a much wider function for her and what she's been working on for Atelier 100, which is a collaboration between H&M and the IKEA group to nurture and support London-based creatives and her role within that of sharing marketing advice for designers and makers. We hope you take loads away from the conversation. And if you do, please do let us know and spread the good artists in residence word. You can find us on Instagram, you can find us on LinkedIn, and you can get in touch with us at hello at artistsinresidence.fyi. Enjoy. Could you introduce yourself for us? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Kat Sarsfield. Um, I am a brand strategist, content strategist and copywriter based in London. Um, and I have previously worked, previously worked in sort of editorial journalism, but made the move over to brand um, about five or six years ago and have just sort of been working with small businesses. Um, and most recently, before I went freelance, I was working for an amazing um, agency called Sondra and Tal, which I think you know because you interviewed Kate Hamilton, who was my amazing boss alongside Emily. Um, and then I went freelance last year. So, yeah. Amazing. And how's the freelance life treating you? It's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I could go back to an office job, to be honest. Um, I was pretty apprehensive about going freelance just because living in London, it's obviously a high cost of living, especially now. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's always a bit of a risk being a freelancer. But I think because I'd built up my career over about a decade, um, kind of on and off working with brands, I think I got to a point where I was able to go freelance with relative ease in the sense of, you know, I had somewhat of a, a good reputation and I think people kind of knew me and, and knew the sort of work I did um, also because I had started a newsletter a couple of years ago and I think that has become somewhat of a, a portfolio of my writing um, which has been quite helpful so yeah freelancing is great it's really nice especially on days like this when I think it's you know sunny and you can go for a nice walk and you don't feel kind of bound by an office um, although sometimes I do miss leaving my flat because uh, sometimes I don't leave it very yeah. often. <laughs> Yeah, when your home is also the office and uh, everything else at the same time, it it gets quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We'll definitely come on to your newsletter um, and some of the work that you've been doing more recently. But how generally do you go about choosing which clients that you and brands and businesses that you want to work with? Um, In general, I... I really like working with small businesses and small brands um, and that's what I've always really done I've never really worked with big corporate brands apart from um, and I'm sure we'll talk about Atelier 100 in a bit but that's um, with H&M and Ikea but especially because of the agency Sondra and Tell that I was with I started with them as their first hire and we were working with small brands and businesses kind of D2C FMCG brands um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of kind of like working with founders 
um, and working with smaller businesses just because you get to really be there at the beginning of their journey and help shape their purpose and their mission. Um, and I'd always worked with sort of smaller brands before my previous role was at Finisterre, which is now a fairly big name um, in England in, in any case. But when I started working with them, we were a relatively small British surf company. Um, and I really loved working there and kind of, I was the content writer there. So I was really helping to sort of shape the voice. And that's just a really exciting sort of part of the journey to be on. So I usually work with small businesses. I tend to work with businesses within sort of certain industri- industries. So usually homeware, um, food and design. Those are the kind of three industries I tend to work with um, the most, although I do work with other brands in other industries as well. It's just, I guess, my interests really collide with those three sectors. Absolutely. And I'm sure you do your best work when you feel passionate about the topic and, and the products as well. Yeah, definitely. So for a big question, Kat, what does creativity mean to you? <laughs> that is a really big question. Um, I think creativity is just really feeling free. Um, I think freedom is definitely one of the big sort of tenets of my life and lifestyle. I've always wanted to kind of feel like I have freedom to um, to create, to kind of have my own voice, um, even within working for a brand as well. Um, and I think creatives in general tend to be much more free spirited. And I think there's an element of when you don't have those parameters or limitations set on you, you're able to be much more creative. Um, and I think people kind of real, have realized that over the last sort of decade of, um, you know, working in creative businesses, yet there needs to be more freedom in remote working and not making sure you're not being hemmed in by an office, but also the freedom of like your culture and making sure that you're part of um, a system that doesn't feel like you're being kind of, yeah, just like hemmed in too much. And so I think for me, that's what um, creativity really sort of is synonymous with. And what's the output of that? You've mentioned your newsletter already, but what is the current output of of feeling free for you? I think for me, it's it's two things. It's definitely having the freedom to work with the businesses that I like to work with. And I think that's a big part of being a freelancer. Um, you know, obviously the word free is within the word freelancer. So I think that is um, a big part for me, making sure that I didn't feel like I was working with people that I wasn't aligned with. Um, which I think just can happen when you're not the one choosing all of the businesses and brands that you're working with. So I think there's definitely that aspect and having a slightly looser schedule. Um, so not feeling like I have to be at the office at 9am, I have to be on this meeting at this time, feeling like I have the freedom to choose when I, my calendar and how I work. Mm. Um, because I think a big part of also being creative means that there are times when you feel like writing and then there are times when you really don't feel inspired or able to to write or be creative. And so it's so nice to be able to kind of choose that, whether that's like early in the morning, late at night, on the weekend, in the middle of the day. Um, so I think there's that element. And then the other part, I think, is being that freedom of um, doing my own thing. So I think the newsletter is a big part of that. So I started that in lockdown in 2020, and it really was it was kind of a reaction to lockdown, obviously, and just like being completely confined within literally these four walls because I was on my own for the first three months of lockdown. Um, right. So I think it was just a way of connecting with other people and having um, and escaping the sort of monotony of daily life and just being able to write. I, I initially started writing really about nostalgic food memories. So it was a way of sort of escaping the 
normality of daily life and harking back to those sort of more halcyon days of being more free and able to go to restaurants or even just like childhood food memories as well. Amazing. I saw this week someone, it was some meme that was going around about the word freelance and how it literally means like sword for hire. Mm. Um, so you were a freelance. Yeah. Um, I really loved that. Yeah, I saw that as well. So tell us about the newsletter then. So since no one asked, how do you define that? So, um, I kept on when I was on um, when we were in lockdown and everyone was sort of very much like locked in digitally as well. I think people were really just on their screens because that was the only way that we could really communicate with anyone. Um, I kind of thought it was quite funny that on Instagram there were just so many more influencer sort of videos um, and people sort of almost taking the piss of being like, everyone's asking about my skincare routine, like swipe up to hear more. And I always thought no one's asking, like who is actually asking you about your, like all of these things. And so when I started, um, I just started on Instagram posting these like silly recipe videos and I'm not a, a recipe writer in any way. And I'm very, very upfront about that in my newsletters. Like I would call myself a food writer, but I'm terrible at writing recipes. I'm completely unmeasured. It's just like a hereditary thing. Um, my mom is also the same. Um, but I would sort of post these little videos and kind of say like, since no one asked, here's how I made this pasta recipe. And um, people just seem to kind of engage with it. And at the time I was working at Sondra and Tell and we were working pretty crazy um, hours because it was just so busy, um, which was, mm. we were really lucky to have quite a lot of work um, during the pandemic. But as a respite from that, I really wanted to do some personal writing that didn't feel like I was just writing for brands. And I've always loved food. I've worked in the food industry before. Um, I love going to restaurants and I've always been kind of known within my friendship group to be like the one to talk to about food. Um, so I just started writing the newsletter and it, it really grew very organically and I've been very careful not to push it too hard. Um, I've been lucky enough to have a little bit of press in a couple of magazines, but for the most part, the big part of my newsletter is like engagement. So I don't have a crazy amount of followers, but I think because I write very personally, um, and I try as hard as I can to be as honest and transparent about how I'm feeling at that time. Um, and relate that to food and, and eating and cooking and, and that sort of element of the kitchen. Um, I think people just relate to it and they quite like that personal writing style, um, which I think sort of Dolly Alderton, for example, had kind of paved the way for that sort of writing. And I think especially during the pandemic when we were also disconnected, I think there was just like a real element of wanting to hear other people's stories. Um, so really grew from that. And I would write it once every couple of weeks. I was pretty loose with the this timing of it because again, I was very sort of like busy at work. So it was nice to not feel like I was forcing myself to, to write something. Yeah. Um, and then I moved over to Substack, um, which is a great platform for, for writers, um, a newsletter platform um, that kind of took the sort of space of like blog, like the early noughties blog, which I love about it. And then I decided to go into kind of a paid model um, about, six months ago which was a little bit of a scary step because I never I never intended to make money from it and to be honest I I don't really care about making money from it in the sense of like it's not my sole income I work as a consultant so I don't necessarily need the money in that sense but I did feel quite strongly that there sh there is value in content and that's what I tell all of my clients and so it felt like I should sort of like you know take my own advice um and I knew that there was enough appetite for it um so I split it out into three newsletters and so now I write three a week one essay on a Sunday um one kind of 
recipe, not recipe, which is what I've kind of branded it because it's usually just something I've cooked very off the cuff and I just guess the measurements. Um, and then one sort of like recommendations uh, newsletter a week. So um, it's been a really amazing experience and it's so nice to just have people reach out and sort of say that they enjoy reading it. And also since I turned it into more of a paid model, I think it just gives me a bit more incentive to be a bit more like committed to it. Cause I think before when you, when you're giving out something for free, you're thinking, well, if I don't write this this week, no one's going to die. Everyone's fine. No one's paying for it. It's okay. Whereas with, um, with the model, it kind of gives me a little bit more accountability, I think, which is always a, a good thing, an adult thing. I was about to say, so, so do you find that a good thing with having an audience that entitled feels the wrong word, but are expecting it of you does that hinder the creative process at all I don't think so because I think I I think I was probably more restrictive on what I was writing than anyone else had expectations of because initially I started writing a lot about nostalgia and and food memories and at some point you run out of ideas you know there's only so many memories you can mine for content and for for writing um and so I started switching up how I wrote, and this also kind of coincided when I did the paid model. And I think because I had coined it as a food newsletter, I felt awkward that anytime I wrote an essay that wasn't specifically about a food memory or specifically about a meal or a kitchen or some something to do with cooking. Um, and I actually quickly realized that the people who read my newsletter, yes, they like food and they're definitely sort of interested in that element, but I think they were more interested in the sort of like, I guess, intimate details and sort of like in some ways like vulnerability of sort of like putting yourself out there um and so I kind of I changed tack and I sort of said my newsletter was more about figuring life out through food um and sometimes I'll write very specifically about a meal and sometimes I'll just weave it in halfway through sometimes I won't even talk about cooking I I never feel like the audience makes me write it I feel like I I'm writing it because I want to the fact that, the, that there is an audience that receives it well is such an amazing bonus. There are also weeks when I won't write an essay because I also believe there's, I don't want to write something just for the sake of writing something. I think yeah. that you should write because you have something to say. Um, and there are some weeks where I'm like, I don't have anything to say. I'm, there's nothing there's, this week. <laughs> there's literally nothing in my head right now. I haven't eaten anything interesting. I'm just going to crawl yeah. into bed. <laughs> yeah. And that feels right to honor that. I yeah, think. I think so. Well, it's, it is, it's such a gorgeous read each week. And, um, I think you capture, um, feelings around food so beautifully. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for writing it. Oh, thank you so much. I very much appreciate that. (laughs) To change direction then, you recently have been working with Atelier 100. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that project, what it is, how you're involved and yeah what it's all about um so i got involved in this project um in may earlier this year um it was actually through an amazing sustainability um and impact strategist amira jiwa and she i'd worked with her um at sondra intel um she had come on board to this joint venture between h&m and ikea um, or rather inca group which is the parent company of ikea Um, And they basically had come together and set up somewhat of an incubator program for London creatives. And the whole concept and mission was to um, support London creatives, but also to support hyper-local manufacturing and design. Um, Because as a lot of people know, 
so much manufacturing happens outside of the UK and outside, often outside of Europe, um, which in lots of ways is quite unsustainable. And considering the UK used to be, you know, was at the forefront of the industrial revolution um, and has such a strong manufacturing history, it's dying out quite a lot. And um, I think H&M and Ikea were kind of interested in seeing how they could revive it or how designers were working within manufacturing in London. So I came on board originally as, I guess, a program manager and community manager. So they needed um, a program of events um, that helped the creators who were chosen to be on the program sort of support them in their brand and business um, sort of acceleration. Um, and then I was also doing a lot of community management. So from my background as I did community management and project management at Sondra and Tell, I did my favorite thing, which is like set up a Slack channel, set up a notion board and kind of like pull all of the information together and then got in contact with, um, various mentors and experts within kind of different industries uh, and different fields that would help these creators with their brands and their businesses. Um, so we had a number of kind of different events. We had this thing called Makers That Made It, which was a, a closed series just for the creators where we invited incredible founders and business owners um, to talk about their experience manufacturing or building up a business. We had an accountant talk about, you know, what it would be like to become a limited business versus sole trader. So really the purpose of the program was to support the creators financially. So we gave them grants with those grants. They were to create a batch of products that would be made over three months, which is a pretty tight timeline. So if you're a designer or a product, um, a maker, you'll, um, you'll know that that's a tight timeline. Um, but the idea was to launch this batch of products in the Atelier 100 store, which is in Livat, uh, the Livat Center in Hammersmith. Um, nestled in between IKEA and H&M. And so we supported them financially, but also we knew that we weren't necessarily there to help them become better makers. We already knew that they were super talented and skilled in that area, but what they didn't have the skills set for was marketing and building their business. Because if you're a designer maker, you're thinking about the products that you're making, the materials you're using, all of those things. You're not necessarily, you don't have the time to be thinking, What's this Instagram campaign? How do I launch a product? How do I go to market? It was really supporting um, the creators in that sense. Um, so I basically spent the last six months just constantly talking to these makers, having conversations with these experts and just making sure that they felt really supported and confident um, in that on that side of things. And also kind of delving a little bit into product development, which was a really exciting sort of aspect of the, the job that I wasn't expecting. Um, so yeah, that's a 10A100. Wow. And you, you've said earlier that you enjoy working with small businesses. So what was it about this project when it came up that initially interested you, especially with it being with such huge kind of retail giants? I think that I thought it was really interesting that such massive companies were putting their money where their mouth was, um, which doesn't always happen. And I think it's really easy to be skeptical of big businesses and corporations because we don't really know how they work. But I thought that that was really interesting. And I'd always been a fan of IKEA because I think that their kind of concept of democratic design and making sure that design is accessible for all types of people is really important. Um, and I, I actually know the founder of one of their R&D agencies, Space Town, which is based in Copenhagen, and, and Camilla, who's the founder, she, her team basically work around the clock to sort of re research the future of how we will live. And so that kind of comes into IKEA a lot. So I knew that they were really thinking a lot about 
impact, sustainability, and how to support kind of um, creatives. So I think that was like a really interesting part for me. Also the fact that despite it being part, part of two big, massive companies, Atelier 100 is still essentially a startup. It's still a, a new business, completely new. All of us are kind of, most of us are consultants. We all came together to kind of like pull together this marketing campaign. It was quite, you know, as startups are like a little bit scrappy and that's exciting. I think that's kind of like the fun part because it's never been done before. So all of these different ideas can kind of come together. And then the other part of it was just being part of that design industry and those design conversations. Um, I just, I, at that point, I had just started working with my client, Jan Hensel, who's a fantastic um, furniture designer based in South London. And I'd had these really interesting conversations with him about materiality. I was learning more about timber and where things were coming from. And because sustainability is, was really at the heart of this hyper-local production of Atelier 100, I thought it'd be really interesting to sort of dive a bit deeper into it um, and meet some more incredible designers, which has really been like the biggest part of um, the program is just these, the creators that we worked with are amazing. And you're not always guaranteed to have good people in a program. And somehow we just managed to have a group of amazing people, both as humans, but also as designers. Um, and they've become really, really good friends um, and also like potential clients, which has been amazing as well. And so for people listening in, how can we find out more about the designer makers and how can we see their work? Yeah, definitely. So you can go to atelier100.com. Um, so everything that they, we launched in October and all of the products that these 13 creatives have made are all available to buy in the store, but also online. So we just launched our e-commerce um website which is really exciting um because we didn't know whether we were going to have that element and we thought it was going to be all um offline but it's great because it means that it reaches a wider audience um so you can read all about each of the individual creatives and also um all about their products and the material manufacturing story yeah that's how you can find out about them but i just think it's it's such an interesting project definitely go onto the um instagram as well because there's a lot of behind the scenes of stories behind each creative um but every single person who i've who i've worked with on that program they're all so inspired by london and i think that's a really exciting part of the program and what i was trying to do with all of the creators was sort of instill this narrative of london making sure that they understood how to weave in those like material whether it was a material element because it was a london made product or london made material or um, whether the story was about the London narrative, we kind of weave that into the copy that um, I had sort of written for um, for each of the products. Um, the whole campaign was sort of called Made of London. And it was, I think that was a really exciting, another exciting part of the project for me is just like, I love this city. And I think that there's so much creativity um, within each like part of it. And it was really nice to see it come together in like a tangible, a really tangible way. No, totally. It sounds amazing. And so so what's next for Atelier 100 and I guess your involvement with it? So Atelier 100 um, is looking at the next sort of collection um, or potentially two collections. So that's going to be next year. Um, I don't think I can say too much about it because we're still kind of in the 
um, the real sort of ideation phase. Um, so I'm just helping them develop um, the program for the next cohort. Um, but if you're a designer maker, then you should just keep your eyes peeled on the Instagram. And if you're thinking of applying, um, we should be doing an open call sort of early 2023. Very exciting. You know, you speak passionately about creativity and, and particularly within London. For anyone out there with a really great idea for something they either kind of see that there's a problem with or um, just something that they want to turn their hand to, what's your advice for kind of getting out of your notes app and turning something into reality? I think definitely just having conversations about it and and talking to lots of different types of people. I mean, whether you're a maker and you're creating a an actual sort of tangible object or if you're just um, if you're someone who's wanting to start a business or um, thinking of a brand idea I think it's always just really helpful to look to experts within different fields and not sort of silo yourself into one place Um, so just do lots of research get on the internet talk to people ask advice um, tell people your idea and I definitely think that that's a big thing that I've learned just about generally like brand marketing and content is that you have to be able to understand how to communicate it. And the only way that you can start doing that is by having conversations. The idea that you might have might not be perfect and there might need to be some iterations, but it's really helpful to just get lots of people's feedback on it. And I think just doing, you know, Tele 100 was an incredible resource for a lot of the creatives because it helps them bring to life ideas that wouldn't necessarily have happened because they didn't have that like brand and business and marketing acumen. Um, and if even if you, you could be the most talented maker in the world, but you, the only way you're going to sell a product is if you know how to tell your story. Um, so I think the marketing side can't be skimped on and it shouldn't feel kind of like it's not a pretense. It's not something that's like not real. It's it's re- very much as tangible as your product is. So um, I think just having those conversations and talking to an expert about it, whether it's someone that you know who works for an agency, a writer, um, or someone who's worked in marketing, just like asking asking any advice is is really really important. I think. I, th- I think you're totally right, and I think that the success happens when you can merge the two together. Yeah, definitely. And I think also just thinking about who your audience is. I mean, that's such a massive part of sort of brand strategy and and content strategy, but it's something that we kind of forget. And especially um, if you're designing something that you like and that you're interested in, it's really easy to just get lost in that and just say like, oh, I love this detail because like, I think that's really cool or because it's got this like very technical, um, you know, joinery work or all of these things. But you have to be able to understand why someone would buy your product or buy into your service or buy into your business. There has to be an element of understanding customers. So which, again, I think just having those conversations, making a prototype or, you know, doing a test website and saying, like, what do you think? Like, do you understand what I'm talking about? What do you think of this element of the product? And just having those conversations and and doing your own kind of market research, really, I think is is really, really important because at the end of the day, you need customers to sell your product. Finally then, so the Artist in Residence community is all about um, shining a spotlight on and empowering people who want to use creativity for good and to enact change. What's a problem that you're facing as a person that you would like to see kind of innovation in that area and 
2023 and beyond yeah i was thinking about this question it's quite um it's quite difficult to kind of nail down but i think it's a slightly more broader um problem that we're all facing and that is the sustainability aspect of being someone who is putting things out into the world whether that's something that's physical and tangible or even a service um or a brand because at the end at the end of the day we're all consumers that that's not going to change and i think what i've noticed about lots of brands who kind of say that they want to be like a net zero brand or you know all of these different sort of um jargon terms um to talk about sustainability it's basically impossible no matter what we're always going to be doing something that's like not great for the planet so we just need to be more mindful of how we create um and so i think especially for designers and makers just i mean most people are doing this already but just making sure that sustainability kind of goes into each part of your business whether that's the materials that you're using um the culture that you're creating um how you work with people um you know it's not just about your carbon emissions and and that kind of thing it's definitely both environmental and social so i think just making sure that you have a really really clear understanding of the sustainability and the impact of your business and what you're doing and again having those conversations and knowing that it's not going to be a perfect answer and you just have to be as transparent as possible and also hold your hands up and say i sometimes i just don't know like what that looks like and you're just trying and make sure that you're constantly doing a bit of research constantly looking into that aspect um, of sustainability because it's obviously such a real problem there's ways that we can like reduce our impact whether that's using like reclaimed materials or just being more mindful of the type of materials that we are using so yeah i think sustainability is like a big a big thing um for all businesses right now and, and they need to really be considering the language they use to to explain it as well totally and and i think there's there's companies out there people like good loop who are also looking at the other side of things where it's yes you you make physical products but how do you talk about them what's the carbon cost of your marketing campaigns yeah. because that's something that i think we all need to become a lot more aware of as well as you say as people who create things whether that's digital or in real life there is always a cost mm. um, and there's some quite shocking facts about kind of the environmental costs of sending an email or foldering an email as opposed to deleting it forever or not or just not sending it yeah um which i think I personally find it quite hard to balance that because it feels kind of another thing on, on the top of the pile to worry yeah, about. Definitely. Uh, yeah. But doesn't mean that you shouldn't no, think, you should about, think it. about it. Yeah. Like I think the digital footprint is quite scary because no one, I don't think anyone really thought that that was something that would really impact, you know, the climate or the world in that sense. Yeah. I think it's something that's really come out over the last sort of like decade, really, if people understanding the true kind of like climate impact of our of of how we work online and i think in general it's really easy to get bogged down by that but it's more just taking it in bite-sized chunks and just realizing that we all have to kind of like play our part in different parts of our lives we can't do everything all at once it would be impossible um but i think definitely if you're starting a business or making products it's just important to have that in the back of your mind um and thinking about sustainable business models as well whether that's i mean a couple of my friends becky and who run this amazing jacket company called painter um and i think that they've really nailed that business model of pre-ordering limited edition batches because it just means you know exactly how much material is being used it means that um you can gauge what the customer is wanting and and how much they need 
um, and you're not having to create surplus um, surplus materials or surplus um, objects or products or anything like that. So it's it's thinking about business models as well and how that can um, run into the future, not just sort of like right now. We've dropped links to Kat's newsletter, Since No One Asked, and Atelier 100 in the show notes for you to find out more. The hugest thank you to Kat for leaving us with so much to think about, um, including the sometimes hidden costs of creation. That is us done for series two. And the hugest thank you to all of our guests who over the last 10 weeks have spoken about everything from inclusive children's publishing to writing about the climate crisis, diversity, equity and inclusion, a filmmaker using a music video to shine a light on warped beauty standards. We've heard from a fashion designer using dead stock fabric to create one of a kind pieces, an Adlan creative sharing his passion for swimming to help his community, the stylist who's worked before Child UK to sell photos for fundraising, and it's nice that senior editor to talk about a BBC Earth collaboration design to raise awareness for the climate crisis. We've so enjoyed having these conversations and we hope you've enjoyed listening to them. You can listen back to any of them where you found this one. And if you do, please do give it a share. When you tell your friends and post about us on Instagram, every listen helps us to grow this community. So please do spread the word because we really appreciate it. For now, we're going to be back in January 2023 with Series 3. We are currently looking for sponsors for Series 3. So if you know anybody who champions creativity and wants to reach an audience of amazing people like you, um, please do get in touch with us. We're on hello at artistsinresidence.fyi. You can expect even more amazing guests, ideas and actions that you're going to love. You can expect events and you can expect a lot more community. It means the world to have you listening in. Thank you, and we'll see you in 2023.